In Steven Spielberg's most recent movie, The Post, he focuses on two newspapers that stood up to the federal government when it tried to stop them from exposing years of deception about the Vietnam War. We're going to be discussing what this movie, The Post, represents and why it's an important film for our time. Stay with us. This is Inquire. From the Mystery Inquirer, I'm Don Wilkins, and joining me on the podcast by telephone is Western Kentucky University journalism professor Mac McCurl, and joining me in the studio is Features Editor Steve Veed. And as I said in the intro, it was two newspapers involved, the New York Times and the Washington Post, and this was 1971. Richard Nixon was president. It was the Times that first printed what became known as the Pentagon Papers, but it was issued an injunction by the U.S. government to cease and desist any more publication of the papers. But then the Post was able to get its hands on the papers and eventually uh, went against the injunction and printed more details from the Pentagon Papers. Now, I have Gordon McCarroll on the phone from Western Kentucky University who teaches the J School Department and Press Law being one of those subjects. First, can you give me some background on the Pentagon Papers? Robert McNamara was the Secretary of Defense in the Johnson administration. The war had been... Um, going on for a few years, and so uh, he commissioned um, uh, the Rand Corporation, which is a, a nonprofit that um, uh, does extensive uh, research and analysis for the U.S. government, um, commissioned them to examine um, the U.S. policy in Southeast Asia, uh, and specifically in Vietnam, uh, over an extended period of time in order to put together a, some kind of a document that would offer people who are making decisions about the war uh, some context. Uh, as it turned out, uh, it turned out to be about 7,000 pages. If you can imagine a 7,000-page document, think about taking um, a, a package of copy paper uh, and stacking 14 of them up. Uh, so you can get a, a, a sense of the volume of information they gathered. And the actual the actual document was called A History of U.S. Decision-Making Process on Vietnam Policy, which is a mouthful. And so it, it became known, commonly known as the Pentagon Papers. Um, Daniel Ellsberg worked for the Rand Corporation. He was a, uh, he was a psychologist, psychiatrist by trade, uh, but he was working on this project. Uh, and uh, at the outset, uh, Ellsberg was actually a supporter of the war. Uh, but as he got deeper and deeper into his research and was able to access the compilation of this massive uh, document, uh, he, he became pretty disillusioned, uh, particularly with regard to what the U.S. government was telling, um, you know, the public about why we were fighting the war, but also uh, information in the document about what the probabilities were that we could even win the war. Uh, which were not good. And so at some point he, he decided that this is something that uh, the American people need to know. And so um, he had been working over an extended period of time of sneaking uh, uh, you know, parts of the document out and copying them. Uh, and then eventually he turned the, he turned the document over to uh, reporters at the New York Times. The, the Times... I think one thing that's interesting, and I don't know how much the movie reflected this, uh, but the Times had that document for about three months. 
where um, editors were arguing uh, about um, whether or not they should publish the contents of the document. Uh, and they were pretty heated arguments, and, and they lasted a long time. And there were some editors that were pretty dead set against uh, publishing it. Um, they realized that um, it was a classified document, uh, even though a lot of the information that was in the document um, was from sources that anyone could gain. There were there were there was some information in there that was uh, not known, previously not known, and some of it was pretty um, pretty damning information, uh, particularly uh, uh, revolving around the, the probabilities of success. Uh, but also the fact that uh, the document referenced the assassination of um, uh, the president of uh, South Vietnam, whose name was NGO Dinh Zine. The U- U.S. had backed um, Zine, uh, but they became disillusioned with his uh, performance. And there was a military coup, uh, and Zine fled out into the country and kind of cut a deal with the U.S. to say, if you just step out of the way, um, we'll take care of you. Well. Uh, he ended up being assassinated uh, during that uh, time, and it was pretty clear that the CIA uh, was involved in that. So pretty damning information, uh, but eventually uh, the Times decided they would publish uh, excerpts, and um, and they went ahead and announced um, in the paper that uh, they were going to start publishing those uh, on uh, June 13th of 1971. Um, and they managed to publish a couple of, of installments, and then the U.S. government stepped into federal court uh, in uh, uh, the district that housed New York and um, and uh, uh, argued for a, uh, uh, a an injunction to prohibit them um, from publishing. The judge uh, in the trial court uh, hearing decided that um, he would uh, put a temporary injunction in place. I think he was pretty sure he was going to be appealed. Uh, so he put a temporary injunction in place that stopped publication for the New York Times. Um, at that point, Ellsberg gave a copy of the document to the Washington Post, and the Post began publishing. Now, the thing here is that the the Post is in a different federal district. So now, so now another hearing starts on the Post's publication. Uh, and in the trial court uh, in the D.C. district, the judge uh, ruled in favor of the newspaper and, uh, and said that, the, that it could not be stopped from publishing uh, on First Amendment grounds, freedom of the press. Uh, the government appealed that decision um, in the D.C. district court and um, the appeals court overturned the lower court decision and put a temporary injunction in place uh, on the post. At that point, um, and I don't know if a lot of people know this, but at that point, Ellsberg gave a copy to the Boston Globe. So <laughs> I guess I guess in today's terminology, you would say that the, the Pentagon Papers were going viral. At that point, the cases were merged and brought to the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, and that's where the real battle um, was waged. And why did the government come after the Washington Post and the New York Times? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Well, there were, um, I would say, uh, about uh, four or five points they made. First of all, they argued that it was classified. Uh, it was classified material. 
And also they argued that it was stolen government uh, property and that the Times should have returned it to the government. Um, they also argued that since the United States was uh, involved in a war, at the time it was called a conflict, in Vietnam, that publication of the um, document could have serious implications in the war effort. Um, they even they even argued that it it it, it could cause uh, loss of life uh, of troops. Um, they argued that it was going to be embarrassing, which might um, hinder negotiations for peace. Um, you know, carry on diplomatic relations, uh, and they also cited the Espionage Act uh, as a reason why um, the law had been broken. Uh, uh, with regard to acquisition of the um, of the uh, Pentagon Papers, uh, the Times' position was that um, since they didn't actually steal the documents, Daniel Ellsberg did, that the Espionage Act didn't apply to them. Um, they also argued that just because the government would be embarrassed uh, was not a heavy uh, heavy enough burden of proof to stop publication, and they introduced a. Uh, uh, a legal idea that that is not constitutionally guaranteed, and that is that the public had a right to know uh, the things that government were doing with regard to this war, which was becoming uh, particularly unpopular, very expensive, both in terms of money and in lives and injuries. Um, and so that's the case that they kind of laid out. And now joining me is Mystery Inquirer Features Editor Steve Veed. Uh, Steve, you had yet to start your journalism career in 1971. Uh, that's when the Pentagon Papers were first printed, and by the and that was, of course, by the New York Times and the Washington Post uh, came shortly after. But what do you remember about the Pentagon Papers and the effect that they had on you? Well, Don, I'll have to uh, say it. at the beginning, I was just a recent high school graduate in, in June of 1971, working a part-time job and getting ready to go to college. So... Uh, uh, it's hard for me to remember exactly what I was hearing or, or knowing about the Pentagon Papers at that particular time uh, in western Kentucky, uh, just what I heard on the uh, nightly newscasts and, uh, from NBC. Uh, but going back and looking kind of retrospectively about it, uh, it had a it had a huge impact because I was one of those young men who were, was vulnerable to the to the military draft at the time, and uh, I believe the Pentagon Papers, uh, as its impact on me personally and a lot of other people my age at that time, was that it hastened the end of the Vietnam War, and uh, the draft by then uh, was uh, was already be beginning to be toned down. It was fewer and fewer men were being sent to Vietnam, and so it had a it had a huge impact. And then it was only later, that uh, a year later, that I be began uh, to be a, a journalism student. And then, of course, beginning to hearing more and more about uh, the impact of the Pentagon Papers and uh, the press freedoms that were exercised by the, both the, the New York Times and the Washington Post. And what I remember about it was just the aggressive reporting and the aggressive uh, stance that these newspapers took in their in their exercising their freedom, their First Amendment freedoms, to uh, publish the truth and let the circumstances or the or the consequences of that uh, play out as they as they did. Now you and I have both had the pleasure of seeing the Post, and to me, you know, the Post is more than a movie. You know, it's more about what it represents, uh, which is to me the vital role the newspapers play in our democracy. And as and as I've said many times, the oldest and purest form of journalism. 
So what did this movie represent for you as you, as you sit through it and, and watched it and watched everything unfold, even though I, you know what's going to happen, but it got pretty, you know, pretty intense. And then there were some details that came out that I didn't realize, uh, you know, that they brought out uh, from the movie. Well, it was a fascinating movie and I, and I enjoyed it uh, a lot. It was fascinating to me to see the, how the mechanics of newspapers worked, especially large metropolitan newspapers like the Washington Post uh, in the early 70s uh, and the aggressive stance that, 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 that Ben Bradley took. And, and there, because those folks, uh, uh, Catherine Graham and Ben Bradley and, and others, were really risking their careers uh, by, by the decisions that they made. But they, uh, but, you know, now we can look back and applaud them for the courage that it took to, to make those decisions because they were they were facing some very real consequences of, of those decisions. I mean, they, as they said in the movie, we could we could all go to jail as as the actor Tom Hanks said in the movie, we could all go to jail for this portraying Bill Ben Bradley, and and that was the truth. And it was a big question: Do do you publicize government secrets that you have discovered? And it was just very interesting to me how they 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 came around to to deciding that, yes, the truth it needs to win out here. And uh, if, if the government has truly been deceiving uh, its own citizens for three decades, uh, stretching all the way back into the early 1950s, then uh, this, so the Pentagon Papers was mainly a, the story was mainly a, a huge expose of that time. And, uh, and so it, it was just a fascinating, uh, very interesting, it was just hard to take your your eyes off of that movie as you as you watch it, especially from a uh, if you're a person like me who spent more than forty years in this business, and uh, we do things here at the Messenger Inquirer uh, every day uh, that uh, that are that is true small community journalism, uh, and and often we we get pushback from things that we print. That's not unusual at all. That's not to compare what we do here to anything that the Washington Post did with the Pentagon Papers or Watergate three years later. But uh, uh, it, it was just a, f a fascinating look into the mechanics of how newspapers work and how uh, an editor like Ben Bradley can, 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 uh, can sh direct that newspaper to doing what it did. And, and you... Uh, I know personally, Steve, you know, can relate to, to what you're talking about, this community journalism. I don't know how many of these Riverport meetings that you sit through that nobody else in their right mind would sit through for the benefit of the public. And, you know, it's not to say, you know, they were doing anything wrong, but but we're there at all these public meetings that, you know, if something did go wrong, we, if, if nobody knew about it, nobody would be the wiser about it. And so even though we gave you a hard time about, you know, about those sitting through those meetings, but there's a purpose behind it. And, and it just shows the dedication that especially your local newspapers have into holding any kind of public board and their members, uh, whether it be elected or non-elected, accountable. That's true, Don, and uh, I've always taken a lot of uh, you know pride in the in the job that we do here, and, and at at any community journalism level, uh, small town journalism is not glamorous. It's not uh, uh, many times it's you feel like you're unappreciated for what you do, like like you said there, but uh, but but at the same time we can take a lot of pride in uh, uh, pursuing truth and 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 holding our publicly public officials accountable for the for the decisions they make. 
and uh, printing the truth and uh, uh, letting the letting the consequences play out as they will. It's not really, as Mr. Bradley said in that movie, uh, as portrayed by Tom Hanks, it's not our job to uh, to worry about the consequences of these things. We have to print the truth, and uh, th- that and uh, that that's the most important thing. Yeah, so before we end our show, I want to read an excerpt from the Supreme Court's decision in 1971. This is what Justice Hugo Black wrote as part of his ruling. In the First Amendment, the Founding Fathers gave the free press protection it must have to fulfill its essential role in our democracy. The press was to serve the governed, not the governors. The government's power to censor the press was abolished, so the press would remain forever free to censor the government. The press was protected so they could bear the secrets of the government and inform the people. Only a free and unrestrained press can effectively expose deception in government. And paramount among the responsibilities of a free press is the duty to prevent any part of the government from deceiving the people and sending them off to distant lands to die of foreign fevers and foreign shot and shell. And that will wrap up our show for this week. And I want to thank... Mr. Inquirer Features Editor Steve Veed and WKU Journalism Professor Mac McCarroll for joining me. To send us questions or to provide feedback, email us at newscast at messenger-inquirer.com. And remember, you can find us on the Messenger Inquirer's website and its mobile app and iTunes where you can subscribe. Until next time, I'm Don Wilkins for Inquirer.